Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shasai Podcast, conversations between scholars from around the world who study childhood, youth, and related institutions historically. As an official production of the Society for the History of Children and Youth, you can subscribe to these shows through iTunes or Google Play. Written and visual materials associated with each episode are available at our website, shcy.org. This episode is from the years 2014 through 16, when the series was called Childhood, History and Critique. Enjoy. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Childhood. History and Critique. I'm Pat Ryan, and this time I have a conversation with Ronald Neeson, who is Catherine A. Pearson, Chair of Civil Society and Public Policy in the Faculty of Law and Arts at McGill University in Montreal, Quebec. Ron is an anthropologist of law and politics, and the author of too many works to list in this setting. I called upon him to discuss his excellent 213 Truth and Indignation, Canada's Truth and Reconciliation Commission on Indian Residential Schools, from the University of Toronto Press. This book is important for us for two reasons, I think. It is about, one, the making of historical consciousness, and the making of it through the world's first TRC devoted to state crimes against children as a group. We recorded our conversation in February 2016. This is heavy stuff, but I think you will find it compelling. Take care. Good morning. How are you, Patrick? I'm good. Ron, thanks for uh, joining Childhood History and Critique. Perhaps you could tell us a little bit about about yourself, about your intellectual journey and what brought you to write Truth and Indignation? Well, I have a long re- postgraduate research trajectory in working with Aboriginal people in the North, for one thing. I was trained as an Africanist. I did work in in northern Mali. But then, as a young person looking for work, I, um, I got a job with the Cree Board of Health and Social Services of James Bay, and that started mm-hmm. a totally different... Uh, line of work that I then developed over several decades. I worked with the James Bay Crees. I lived for two years in a reserve community in northern Manitoba that had had a residential school, so I was hearing a lot about residential schools. And then an opportunity arose um, through a through a research assistant, Marie-Pierre Gadois, who had connections to the Jesuit, to, to the uh, Oblate community through her father. And I was introduced to some oblates in the, uh, just before the TRC began its work, who were part of the um, uh, compensation regime that was part of the settlement agreement of 2007 and had, uh, shall we say, very distinct opinions about the, their experience of compensation and their ideas of the commission. And so I continued to do interviews with them through the work of the commission up until the time in, that I pub- published uh, Truth and Indignation. As a legal anthropologist, I would 
I would call this uh, a uh, an institutional ethnography. Yeah, yeah. Which yeah. took place over multiple settings. One of the f- things that I found gripping about it is it gave me a window into something that, of course, was in the news, but right. I had not been able to attend myself. Right. And it gave me a, a sense of how knowledge was being produced, in a right. sense, uh, right. in a way that was opaque in terms of the mass media coverage. Right. In, in a sense that a lifting of the veil, if you will, to people who hadn't had the uh, either chosen to or had the opportunity to see the commissions firsthand, the events of the commission were held in several different locations across Canada. Right. For, Perhaps we could back up for the listeners, and if I could ask you to talk a little bit about the historical context, uh, Canada's residential school project, which is not unique. There are residential school projects of a similar nature all over the world, certainly very common in the um, colonial world and the English-speaking world in general, uh, uh, but including there are residential projects in England and in Ireland and other other places because it's part of a edu- larger educational project. So Canada's residential school project was inspired largely by the American one, mm-hmm. where they're referred to as boarding Indian boarding schools. Indian boarding schools, yes. Um, and this was uh, an outcome of the sort of westward expansion, displacement, defeat in war, what do we do with these people? And then, mm-hmm. and then there was this idea of uh, assimilating them through uh, through boarding schools. Mm-hmm. And Canada imitated that model. Um, they saw it as being having potential for resolving the so-called Indian question. Yeah. Um, but they did it differently. They did it through churches. Um, they, they engaged the various churches to undertake the the operation of the schools. So the government, the federal government was centrally responsible for some 140 residential schools through Canadian history. There were two in operation at the time of Canadian Confederation in 1867. Mm-hmm. There were about a hundred and, uh, over a hundred and hundred thousand students who went to these schools. Um, there are some 86,000 students, former residential school students who are alive today with a number, of course, that is continually dropping since the last of these schools closed in the mid 1990s. So the heyday of these schools was in the post-war period. Um, and then they began to come into question through, through, uh, uh, the whole civil rights and awareness, um, the empowerment of some of the residential school students. In the early 60s. This began uh, uh, in the 60s, yeah. uh, to, gained momentum in the 70s, and it's by the um, 1990s that we have this resistance taking form in lawsuits. Yes. So they empowered themselves through the courts. And they were uh, victorious in many of these cases. They went after some of the worst uh, um, pedophile priests mm-hmm. and won. And, and let's, they, let's, let's talk about that timeline of the development of the critique a little bit so people can set it 
Now you can add and correct to the degree that I don't have it uh, uh, precisely. Right. I'll try to do it from memory. Yeah. But but from 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 my memory. And by the way, the the CBC online has a part of the site for the listeners that gives you a lot of primary material, so you can right. listen and watch the materials throughout time. So not just in the present, what's being critiqued and produced, but from from actually the promotional videos uh, in the 50s. Right. Um, but what I noticed in the character of the audio on the CBC radio of critique was the initial critique was language loss. Right. The initial critique is largely cultural assimilation. Right. And that that's, continues to be a sure. dominant theme, but it's the... Uh, it's the what you will pick up on first in the 60s and perhaps early 70s. Right. And then what gets introduced um, in the 70s and in the 80s, and this follows general changes in critiques of how children are being treated, right. you get violence, yes. questions of corporal punishment, mistreatment, uh, emotional abuse, and then in the 80s, and the 90s, that switches to cases of more extreme cases of really grotesque physical abuse and sexual abuse. That's right. Becomes the center of the critique um, and really drives, I think, the litigation. Is that correct? Exactly. And, could, I mean, it's hard to litigate about cultural there transformation. Was a, a, attempts were made to do so, um, but unsuccessfully. And, but it's, in fact, violent crime, particularly sexual violence against children, there is str strong legal grounds to seek compensation. Yes, that was legible by, by the judicial system. They could understand that and go after it. Yeah. And they did prosecute it vigorously so that by the early 2000s, there were, there were literally thousands of successful cases building one upon the other that threatened to bankrupt the, the churches and that were hugely costly in terms of, uh, in many ways for the, for the federal government as well. Yeah. And, and that, so that about 2004, five, they start seeking settlement, a class right. action settlement to cover most of the litig litigants. Right. So a massive class action suit was filed by the Assembly of First Nations. Uh, and that led to the um, settlement agreement. Of, it was uh, finalized in 2006 and came into effect in 2007. And, and, and in terms of the settlement, there were two, two, two sides of it. One is a general settlement uh, that follows years that you were in residence. Right. Uh, a Ten thousand dollars for one year, if I'm remembering correctly. Right. It was called a common experience payment, so it was ten thousand dollars for one year that you could prove that you were in a residential school, a recognized residential school, regardless of experience. Regardless of experience, and three thousand dollars for subsequent experience. So the average payout for those um, common experience claims, CEP claims, was about twenty thousand dollars per person. And then. There was another part of the the uh, the uh, compensation right. was based on specific cases of violent abuse and sexual abuse. Right. So this was a separate stream that was called the independent assessment process. Yeah. And there was a whole structure built around that. 
Uh, and we're not to the end of that yet, are we? Or would you, did we just, we're not quite to the end of that. There was a, d- a deadline that passed, I don't remember what it was, for filing a claim, and there may still be claims that are being adjudicated. Yeah. Um, and the average payout for those is a little more than $100,000, and there have been multiple billions of dollars paid out in compensation through both of these regimes. And the the uh, payments are coming from the Canadian uh, federal government. From the federal government. And the total amounts, and just providing that context, people understand the significance of what we're talking about. If I'm remembering correctly, it's about, I'm not sure, the total package, about $5 billion. Right. About three. Uh, three, three and a half billion for the first part. Uh, no, less. I, less. Oh, One point eight billion for the first part. Right. And three and a half for the for the for the for the specifics. adjudication of harms. Yeah. Yeah, of harms. Okay. And um, and this is two individuals. Payments right. to individuals seems like a significant policy element. Right. And it does not address his. Uh, historic underfunding, other things that are important parts of uh, parallel dialogues. No, that's right. Yeah, and, and, and questions of structural development and so clean all water. Those, and all of those questions of addressing Canadian history, addressing assimilation policy, or what the commission referred to in its report as cultural genocide, which is something that they wanted to... Um, uh, and, uh, that they wanted to press from, from the beginning... Um, those were pushed off to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. That's part of the settlement agreement. Folks now have a sense, a little bit of sense about your larger background as a legal anthropologist and, and experience uh, living and, and studying um, uh, First Nations communities here in Canada, and then uh, a sense of the residential school project, the, the, the litigation settlement structure, but I'd like now to draw attention to to your book, to Truth in Indignation. So the the questions of the book start from the methodological premise and opportunity. Where a lot of people studying the law want to know is how the insights of of anthropology, ethnography, of social science research can make the law more effective, right? How do we use this information to improve the way the law is applied? Mm-hmm. So I should begin by saying that my approach is a little bit different in that I'm more interested in looking first at what the law is doing, right? So what do our legal structures do? So in the book, I begin with sketching out, of course, the methodology, the problem, the residential schools, and so on. But I'm interested in beginning with the mandate of the commission as one of the, one of the ways that knowledge becomes structured. Mm-hmm. So how is it that the powers that are given the commission have an influence on the knowledge that the commission produces and that become part of the of its work in creating a new narrative of the state. And and when we look at the commission, we see that the people who negotiated it ne- negotiated it arrived at something very particular, very in a sense unusual for truth commissions. As someone who studies ch- children and childhood knows a lot about education, 
and and, right. and those institutions and residential institutions for children. But what I didn't know very much about was truth and reconciliation commissions. Yeah, the features that are very specific to it are, uh, I think, an intentional victim centrism. There was an idea at the outset when the powers of the TRC were negotiated that this needed to be an opportunity for residential school survivors to tell their story, what these residential schools were and the harms they had produced to the people who were subject to those harms. And it was the only one in the world where children and children's victimization was the central issue. The central figure was children and school children. We have we have child soldiers in TRCs like Sierra Leone, um, but we don't have a TRC where the harm of the state is directed towards children as the objects of the powers of the state. Families are seen as being victimized too. The, the communities that are emptied of children are a part of the story. And, and actually that's one of the interesting findings, at least from my own reading, and this is maybe something I'm injecting into your study, but it seems to me that parental rights are at least as important as any independent notion of children's rights in Canadian law. I mean, right. children's rights to participation, self-determination, uh, as one writer put it, is, you know, a sort of Bambi compared to the Godzilla of, of parental rights. Exactly so, yeah. What are some of the other characteristics that make Canada's TRC distinct? It, it, cannot, it cannot conduct judicial hearings. It has no... It has no subpoena powers. It can't compel people to give testimony. Yeah. It's, it's constructed, and it uses this word in the mandate, as a, as a voluntary process. Everybody who appears has to be there as somebody who's wanting to give testimony. More, more than that, it cannot accept any, from, from people who give testimony, it cannot have them, it cannot allow them, and they were often reminded, to give the names of people who were accused of committing crimes who had not already been prosecuted. There was no naming names in the commission. Sometimes sometimes people who were giving testimony, on a few occasions I was there, and they just defied this and said, so-and-so did this to me, and you can do what you want. Yeah. They yeah. didn't like it. It's, uh, it's almost like medical confidentiality superseded that you are named publicly in a criminal case and that 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 has to be posted right you know and that that we have free access to that information it's as if they're following the principle of non-disclosure around age but what's interesting here of course is that children themselves aren't testifying at all and the ones not being named but the accused perpetrators the accused perpetrators are not being named named either Right, but I think this legal setting, what was what was basically at work here, that also had those implications, was that the TRC was not to be at all a judicial process, period, in in any way, shape, or form. People sometimes misunderstood that. You know, they'd come to the microphone yeah. with their supports, and they would ad address Justice Sinclair as Your Honor. Yeah, um, that's interesting. Uh, and I didn't didn't mention that in the book, but it's no, something yeah. that occurs. But that makes sense given the other the history of the TRCs in other places. I think it's, the South African TRCs following uh, apartheid are uh, uh, the model for many of us. Right. I know there are many other TRCs, but for 
just the educated public, that's what we think of. And right. we think of the naming, and we also think of the way reconciliation and truth are are defined in terms of white police officers right. being in a room with uh, the black South African victims who they have hurt and right. being present and having to listen exactly. to them yes, and having to listen to them with everyone else listening in the world yes, at the same time. And that is, it's hard to forget that. Yes. It's so powerful. It is. You th- yet that element is not here. It's because not. Because the priests and nuns, to a large extent, unless they voluntarily go, collectively there's a division between that group and the TRC. Yes, that was a, that was one of the aspects of the structure of the TRC that was that really stood out to me, particularly when I interviewed the priests, brothers, and nuns who ran the schools. There was this, there was this huge disjuncture, disparity between the understanding of the lived experience of the schools from the point of view of the people who ran them every day, not not the archbishops and bishops who came to give apologies, but the people who ran the brothers and the sisters, the brothers, the sisters, um, the priests who were there in the schools um, were not coming to give testimony. They were disaffected with the process. Now, I, you know, in saying that they're absent, I don't want to be misunderstood that I'm wanting to substitute their voice, their voice for the survivors. Yes. That it is, you know, we're not, we're not suggesting, I wouldn't suggest for a moment that um, there's no responsibility uh, on the part of these people who are absent from the commission, but as as you point out, the kind of the kind of uh, discomfort of co- the confrontation of the beliefs, the questioning of their fundamental assumptions, was not something that happened in a public forum. So the parties were not all present. Yeah. And another absence that was notable to me was the absence of the federal government. There's there's a case of Blackwater v. Plint that went to the Supreme Court that found the federal government, um, and you know how uh, law loves numbers, right? Yeah. So the number is that the federal government was 75% responsible for the schools and the church is 25%. So yeah. we, can, we can laugh at that uh, sort of numerical absurdity of that. <laughs> yeah, the absurdity of that, and yet... It points to something very real, that the federal government had a primary responsibility for the schools. And yet, what was its participation in the Truth and Reconciliation uh, Commission? And and these aspects of process, let me present something to you as as a reader about what I was thinking when you explained and unfolded this and helped me order some of my thoughts and misgivings. Right. The two things in what you've done when you have uh, very compellingly described the traumatic experiences of many children and then interviews with the priests and that you have them both in the books. Right. Doing something in the book, the TRC itself, prevents by its structure. Right. And then you also provide, uh, provide some just incredibly 
accessible commentary of how the state uh, experienced the least possible collateral damage. That, that was my understanding. That would be my interpretation. A- a- of absolutely. But there are two things. There are two huge things that as a historian of childhood and the state that come from my reading of these types of assimilation projects. One, the basic assumptions about learning and about childhood and about ethnos that the priests would have brown to this foundational understandings of learning in childhood and the socialization and assimilation of children are absolutely not up for grabs by the TRC. Right. And to me, that's the nub of the question, generational relations. The other thing that's not up for grabs is the way the modern state defines itself very much in terms of a biopolitical regime that rests on the notion of governing populations by being able to control the socialization of children. Yeah, that didn't enter into... It can't enter into this thing because you're not bringing together the teachers and the children or the victims as adults. It's also not being seen as a transitional justice process, which would be a TRC. There's no change of regime that's at the heart of this Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Which is another one of the fundamental differences that you point out, is right. that we haven't had a war and the collapse of a state, or and, a are, and rebuilding the state, and reflecting on what the Canadian state and other states right. are about. So the state is there wanting to Using the TRC to fend off Reconstruction. Right, in a, in a sense, or to minimize... Minimize the damage. Hmm. I think this is why truth and indignation should be read, that it opens up a space for this kind of critical conversation. But it's also what I'm afraid will be misunderstood. And here's why. Okay, I'm interested to hear this. Well, I'm concerned that your critical edge will be misunderstood because people will read from it that somehow you're an apologist for something like the residential school. Yeah, and that's... Or that they'll read it and they'll think that you're doubting the truth of what um, the former students are saying. Right. Looking at the TRC um, and how how it constructed the truth involves looking at how it shapes the survivor testimony. And, and and that's uh, an important part of the commission and its work that was undeniable. Yeah. Um, and and that can be misunderstood as questioning the reality of reality of abuse of what the students went through and the suffering that they went through. But um, I'm I was aware from the beginning of that uh, of that issue, and indeed that's been the focal point of some of the criticism of the work. Yeah. That that I've uh, that I've heard and heard in person when I, as I presented as I presented this uh, this book in a variety of venues since it's appeared. Yeah. Um, but you know that's the that's the cost of doing something that um, I think takes the takes the phenomenon out of the usual context and looks at it from a different point of view. It's it's sure to be. It's sure to be misunderstood by some, um, but in in that process of misunderstanding, maybe there is going to be uh, a, another insight that emerges. Uh, uh, perhaps looking again at the at the way history is con- is, is, is made, uh, 
is made over, over the long term. And the, the success of the commission, I think, is one of the things that's surprised me about it since since the book came out, that it ha- actually has managed uh, to a large degree to to communicate its central core ideas. There is a there's a base of let's call it what it is racism in Canadian society that's yeah. visible in some of the threads and newspaper stories and so on um, on the commission and on the aftermath and on the notion of uh, cultural genocide in particular. Yeah. Um, but still, uh, it's managed to influence opinion to the point that that racism comes out. Yeah. But that the ter- the terms of the discussion, if you want to call it that, are are there. That it's really shaped opinion. And Canada isn't alone uh, in these stories. This is, I guess, one of the things that I'm disappointed is the connection to the larger set of generational relations. Right. Relations to the state aren't are difficult to get to in the way that this history has been constructed. All institutions of these varieties produce these phenomena. The epitome of the powerless with the people who have the uncontrolled power over them through the way that institution is constructed. Exactly. It's been a disaster again and again. We we had uh, in the Montreal uh, Commission hearings, we had people from the Duplessis orphans and notorious uh, orphanages in, in Quebec that yeah. fostered similar conditions of sexual abuse and so on. The difference with the residential schools is that the residential schools were oriented towards deculturation, assimilation of these yeah. people. Yeah. And that added another element of uh, um, contempt for for these powerless children as carriers of a maligned culture that that they were there to to change. And that and that, but it it adds a lo- element of contempt, but one that is also, from my point of view, not been talked about with enough breath. And I'll give you an example. Uh, Historians have been writing about schools and these kinds of school projects for a long time. And the ideas of integration, which are also imbued with liberationary themes of transformation, of accessibility, of opportunity. I mean, one of the lines in your book In a few short decades, a complete transformation took place in the moral outlook toward a national policy in Canada. Now, here you're writing about the residential school policies. Mm -hmm. So in 30 years, transformation takes place. But in the 40s and 50s and before, the specific moral outlook would have been schools like this provide access to English and French literacy to personal discipline which allows you to conduct yourself appropriately in a free society yes to piety and knowledge of the moral truth through religion right things of course can be criticized there's another side to all of these things (laughs) right of course to security and good health yes and those were the primary arguments of the mid-20th century progressive of course the other side of those things is assimilation and language loss, right? Tr- the trauma of disciplinary institutions, yes. Not piety, but corruption, and not security, but violence, yes. And all of the. I guess what I would say is, 
that there's there is in fact, and from my point of view, not one truth to those dichotomies, to the to school processes. The devil is in the details, mm-hmm. and particularly since literacy, discipline, piety, and security are still important parts of how how we raise children, examining the way more than just these institutions, but many institutions in generational relations result in assimilation, trauma, corruption, and violence. Mm-hmm. That To not see that there's a general frame here that's difficult and right. to really problematize it. In other words, if you can just demonize the assimilators, you don't have to confront the way that these ideals have survived. I guess that's and the way they manifest themselves in other institutions. Absolutely. Yes. And in our own relationships to our own children. Right. And to our own students. Right. Yeah. I mean, I mean, one way to understand education is that it's the transformation of the soul. Sure. And that's an old idea and we are not beyond it. I guess that's my point. Right. Of course. I mean, these were essential concerns of Foucault and his idea of, of, uh, the technology of the self. Absolutely. Um, and I think that what you're what you're saying takes a point that I make in the book, and I think takes takes it even further than I did in the book. Yes. Um, so I, I was looking at the at the way the mandate of the commission w- was restricted, right? So it's restricted in the kinds of schools that are defined as residential. Absolutely. Something hundreds one of the, are defined out. Hundreds process. Of, if it was the same kind of school but run by the provinces, it wasn't ex- yes. excluded. If it had Métis students who didn't have a status card, it was excluded. If it was non-residential, right, it was excluded. A day school. Ex- so there are fourteen hundred institutions that are claimed by uh, Aboriginal people as being residential schools. That points to the range of institutions that were seen as being assimilative and having the same kind of experience. So this this means that people said, oh, I was subject to that kind of discipline in this convent or or that TB ward or whatever it was. That was a residential school. And they make a claim to having that included. And, of course, it's rejected, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so 1,400 institutions are are rejected. And, and, and to me, the, the what's extremely important about the exclusion is the exclusion functions as an insulator to a far larger problem. Right. And so that's the problem of generational exactly. relations, generational violence, right. and relationships between care and control. And it's an, a proper understanding of the scope of these ideas at the time that they occurred and the kinds of institutions in which they were built in. The, the, the focus on residential schools, on federal Indian residential schools, narrows our understanding of the phenomenon considerably. Yes. Um, and its understanding and the, and the emphasis, I would argue, on the worst abuses in those schools masks the manifestation of these foundational ideas in other institutions, including contemporary institutions that have the same kind of pedagogical goals of ideas of self-improvement, protection, safety, security, uplifting, 
Yes. Uh, all inherited from these these ideals of the 1940s and 50s, but manifested in in, in different form. Yeah. Um, it makes them unrecognizable. It puts a, a point final to the history of the schools with their closure in the 1990s. It takes one of the graphic examples, the most graphic, hard-wrenching examples that you could find. Right. The failure of our highest ideals and their interior problems, problems that are interior to their very logic, and it puts them in a ghetto and insulates them from manifestations that are more ordinary. Right, yeah. Now, and, to, and that's that's a that's an issue if your main point is to is to confront the violence the violence in generational relations. Yes, I think so. Now, to to give the uh, Aboriginal activists and the TRC some credit, Absolutely. they do make they do make links yeah. to things like welfare policy as continuation of assimilation policy, and this is. This, these kinds of institutions are addressed in their call to action. So they're taking a broad approach to the response to the findings of the commission. But, uh, and there is a big but here, I think that the, the effectiveness of the commission in the way it did its work and the structure of it and the way it was defined and the way residential schools was, was, were defined still makes the public history, the understanding of the history of the state, focus on these institutions as the source of these uh, ideas of pedagogy, self-improvement, uplifting, whereas they were much more broad-based and have, and and much more durable yeah. uh, than would be assumed by looking at that history and the way it is framed. The, the cover, of, the cover of, of your book has uh, a picture of at least one of the sacred boxes. Right. The uh, testifier could place an object into mm -hmm. the box as this notion of leaving behind the trauma, in a sense, or putting it in a place. Right. And you say of it, whatever else this ritual accomplishes, it also brackets the testimony within a kind of ontological invulnerability. There can be no contestation of opinion, no alternative historical narrative with any broad power of persuasion when it runs up against the perceived infallibility of sacred truth. Could I ask you to talk a little bit more about what you observed there in terms of the sacred rocks, uh, how you were trying to problematize it, how we can understand this, not in a dismissive way, but to understand that there are always consequences beyond intentions within any ritual. Right, yeah. Um, so the there is a sacred box that followed the commission. I call it sacred. Um, that's my way of framing it. It was just referred to as the Bentwood box. It was the yeah. symbolic focal point of the of the commission. Yeah. It was it was done by a very talented young artist by the name of Luke Marsden, who's a Coast Salish artist. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful piece of work, very powerful. And it's, it looks like it's carved and then painted, so it's three it has this three-dimensional outside surface. Right. It's, sometimes they're referred to as curved boxes. So the, so the Northwest Coast peoples had these boxes yes. to store uh, oolican oil or things that needed to preserve. Okay. 
preserved. They were receptacles for sacred, for, for regalia, for, for special costumes. So they used them as basically stored. So it has a history in the culture, and it here it's an ineffable space. Right. An unspeakable space. That's where you get the word sacred. So he, what, what the artist did was take some of the traditional motifs and replace them with motifs that reflected the schools, including the frontispiece, which, which depicts his grandmother, who'd been pushed down a flight of stairs in a residential school. Her fingers were broken. Yeah. And in the last years of her life, she explained to him what had happened to her. She'd been silent about it. Yeah. And, and he depicted this with, with her, with her sorrowful face and her broken fingers as epitomizing the residential school experience, the powerlessness of the children and the, and the way that experience would carry over into adulthood. So she's, she's depicted as an elder with her gray hair. Yeah. Elsewhere in the box, he depicts, um, Inuits and Metis and, and the churches are depicted with the, with the cross that circles the top of the box. So, so it is intended to broaden out from his grandmother's experience to be inclusive of all those who went to residential schools. It's a very, very powerful um, symbolic representation of what the TRC was doing. Yeah. Now, when the TRC began its work, it didn't have that much significance at all. In the first first uh, hearing in Winnipeg, Marsden was introduced and told his story, story but later on, it began to have increasingly symbolic significance as objects were deposited in, in more of a ritual manner. Yeah. With people holding hands of an object. It could be a video, a book, a, a blanket that was uh, used in the residential schools. Anything that could inform the work of the commission in a material or, uh, or a documentary way. Yeah. Um, and it had two a, a number of a number of effects that I was able to see that that contributed to the way the commission framed the testimony that it was that oriented it towards a certain kind of experience that bracketed out the the uh, residential school experiences the commission was presenting it from the wider understanding of the harms of um, these total institutions, as Goffman calls them, and the ideas behind them. The ritual nature occurred in the second or third commission a major event, and and was a part of the, yeah, the testimony that was invited by the, by the commissioners. Mm -hmm. People who sort of went on to a, to a, um, onto a speaker's list and wanted to, to provide what was called expressions of reconciliation. Yeah. Um, and this is, uh, this is just one of many ways that the commission Framed and shaped testimony in, in a particular direction oriented towards the narrative of cultural loss that was missing from the courts. It yeah. wanted to really make this case of cultural genocide. Even though cultural genocide has no traction in international law, 
Yeah. Uh, it wanted to argue that side of the schools. Yeah. Um, and it did it by cultivating a particular kind of testimony, not just through the sacred box and the ontological invulnerability that it brought about, but through preparing people for for giving testimony, not just giving the, them the courage to testify, but providing templates for the kind of testimony that was preferred by the commission. And, and your book uh, details this uh, in terms of both running you know, snippets and, and broadcasting them in videos prior to right. the event, uh, selecting who would go first. Right. Uh, and then, therefore, by two, those two means is the ones I can recall, where you would create a dominant narrative right. and that could be added to, and it doesn't mean that it was hermetically sealed and there was an unpredictability, sure. but it is an effective means of framing, right. of framing so this- what the message would be. Right, and this isn't to say that the truths that people brought under those circumstances were were any less uh, real, personal, important, significant for understanding the schools. But it, as part of an ethnographic project, it was important for me to understand how truth was framed, produced. and represented, and produced. Yeah, and and it and it is significant though that in a vac maybe vacuum is too strong a word. I don't mean it in that sense, but at least in a space where some other uh, judicial met- methods of subpoena, cross-examination, um, you know, the disclosure, rules of disclosure mm-hmm. in a more adversarial setting, right. those all being re- removed, these kinds of, of, uh, of uh, rules of engagement or exchange set up and become predominant. Right, and I think, yeah, this is what the commission intended. Yeah. They wanted it to be a space for survivors so designated to tell their stories. They wanted them to feel comfortable. They didn't want them to be confronting their abusers. Um, Yeah. uh, And um, that was how they negotiated the mandate of the commission. And, um, And that term, that term survivor also draws on you know, an existing discourse about trauma. It defines what has happened in particular ways. It provides a narrative as well. And survivor becomes maybe one of the most important nouns, becomes instantiated as a as person, a type of person. A survivor is anyone who has attended school. And there's a line between um, what survivors will eat. I mean, they had their separate food. Right. At these events. Right. They had support persons so that they actually walked around and were identifiable. Right. And, and, speci- and tables. And so, so the survivor becomes... And rest areas and so yeah. on. The, the so this is... The survivor is not produced by the corporal punishment or the sexual abuse or even the departure from the family. The survivor is produced by the... Um, discourse of the TRC and what built up to it. And right. really, back that term appears in the 80s as well. Of course. It's, it's, it's a post-Holocaust It's a post-Holocaust term. term. So it begins, it begins but, it, but it needs a structure to become what's visible. Right. You know, and I think that this is important for the analytics, right, to understand how events get leaked, linked and a history gets made. Right. 
people, I'm afraid, will interpret this, as I've said before, as being an apology right. for, for the event, for what happened. And I would hate for that to happen, because that's uh, not what's intended. In fact, there's a way to look at the limits of the commission in the hope that they might in some ways possibly be overcome in some ways and for people who've experienced harm in other forms in other ways to have more of a voice that isn't excluded by the bracketing of this experience in particular ways well let me let me give you an example and give uh, and allow you to respond to it i have recently attended a talk by um, chief leslie whiteye uh, leader of the chippewas in uh, southwestern Ontario here. She had her grandfather just up on the uh, screen, and, and her grandfather had, had, had uh, been, been an attendee to residential schools. And um, he was then categorized as a survivor through that experience, and she was talking about this. And this is, I think, very important. It's important to, to hear in whatever manner you can, if you're an audience, about an important part of our history as Canadians. Mm-hmm. Right? But when I when I when I looked at the picture of him, I immediately was drawn to something different. I'm a I'm a veteran of the uh, United States military, and I immediately knew that he was a combat veteran in Vietnam, and he was in uh, the Airborne Rangers, and uh, was an infantryman as well. You could tell that by the the, the uh, insignias on what he was wearing, mm-hmm. and he became framed entirely in terms of the residential school. Right. And then at the end, as a side, she said, "Oh yeah, he was a he was a soldier in Vietnam." As if it was an aside, right. and I couldn't help but think to myself, "My God, if there's one thing that a residential school would prepare you for, it would be being in the army." Right. It is so similar. Yet her words about his service in the U.S. military. And Vietnam was praiseworthy. Right. And the positioning of the residential school was rightfully one of condemnation. And as someone who is in some ways connected to, I have some shared experience with this person, I I immediately said, no. We need to also think about the disciplinary mechanisms that turn someone into a soldier and allows the conduct of Vietnam to happen. There's a message being, there's a lesson being dropped out of the historical consciousness. I'll tell you a, I'll tell you a, uh, one of the, uh, one of the stories that a priest told me that I guess didn't, that didn't find its way into the book, but that struck me as significant since, um, talking about the uh, school in Labrette, I forget its exact name. In Labrette, Saskatchewan, mm-hmm. he was very proud of the fact that they gave um, drills to the the male students. They were, you know, they spent so many, so much time per day doing parade drills, yes, around. And he said, as a, in in summarizing the effect of that, he said, we gave them personalities, yes, so that a parade drill gives you assimilating yourself into this sort of command and obedience structure is something that to him gave these students personality. By the way, the the notion of survivor that was inherited by the TRC also came from the Vietnam War. It was an extension. The Vietnam 
survivors were one of the first extensions of the concept of the Holocaust survivor yeah. into contemporary experience, as was survivor of sexual abuse. So it sort of expanded from the Holocaust, included other kinds of phenomena, of which, of which uh, illegitimate war was one. So your example points to somebody who is a survivor in, in two senses. In two, in two senses, but one sense of their, one, one part of their story drops out and gets reconfigured. Right. And that dropping out I find frightening because it's precisely the connection that is part of the history that I would like to tell, I guess. Right. I know that's an assertion on my own part, and I guess we're all appropriating, right? Right. But it seems to me worthwhile to be able to add to that discourse to say, yes, these are monstrous institutions, and let's remember where they come from let's look what at they're their, linked to. I think that the, the project for people who are looking at these phenomena critically are to, are to break down the arbitrary boundaries of inclusion and exclusion that are shaped by their mandates and to think about them more broadly and critically. Um, your approach to it goes uh, further than I did in the book to a kind of a, a Foucauldian project that's looking at these institutions and their consequences um, very, very broadly. Yeah. Um, it's difficult for a commission, of course, uh, a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, to take to take on a project like that. And and one thing that just for for our listeners, one thing that you, your book is, I think, incredible at is the way that it draws this edge. You draw out this. But you also are really clear that the commission and the activists are responding to an environment and they have to respond to the law and they have to respond to the Canadian state. Right. And they're playing the cards they've been dealt. Exactly. Now, it doesn't mean that they're not making choices. Yes. But to place the blame, if, if we could call it blame, if we turn critique into blame, that would be unfortunate it would be because they are trying to bring to light a very difficult important truth and they can only operate within the structures that are available exactly so um and whether intentionally or not those structures created certain boundaries of inclusion and exclusion that prevented the commission from really looking more broadly at the phenomenon that prevented it from even considering identical institutions that had happened in other in other circumstances run by other powerful organizations organizations and that which which have the same disciplinary procedures which put yes. the same subject position on the child which yes. actually have the same cultural ethno assimilationist agenda right similar ideas about what human progress and, is and what's interesting to me is that People who came to the microphone pointed this out again and again, again and again. It was a again, phenomenon that I, re- a phenomenon that I refer to as the "while I have the microphone." While right? I have the microphone. While I have the microphone, I, I'm going to tell you about my experience as you want to hear it, right? Yes. Uh, right. And then when they're done, it's like, oh, and by the way, while I have the microphone, dot dot dot. Whether they say that explicitly or not, there's the yeah. "while I have the microphone" pause, and then they say, 
What's what's really bothering bothering them? What's really getting at them? What's and, and many times this brings us into the present, outside of the residential schools, right. onto onto the down. reserve, or into the band governments, or into right. the relationship with the federal or government, policing or welfare yes. agencies, or any of those things. Unemployment. Yes. Uh, unexcluded by the mandate of the commission again. Again, to give the commission credit, they were very patient in listening to these stories uh, in not interrupting them. We were not using a gavel to say, sorry, we have to stay on point. Ron, this has been uh, uh, a great treat for me. Uh, And for me, actually. I just uh, admire your book. There's so much good work being produced that this is the kind of book that I... Uh, you come across and you say, well, now I'm going to have to make space for this writer uh, in my head, in my in my running bibliography, because uh, what terrific, terrific work. Oh, that's very, very kind. I appreciate that. And it's especially encouraging for me to have somebody, uh, an interlocutor who really seems to have understood it deeply and who's sort of going beyond the re- some of the reactions to the position I've been getting that uh, that seem to m- misunderstand the main yeah. points of the work that are starting from a different premise. perspective. Yeah, perspective. I see myself as somebody who who thinks and writes historically as well, mm-hmm. uh, and that has sort of d- different challenges and looks at the uh, production of truth differently than somebody who's looking towards. Uh, uh, justice, for example, or some other outcomes of a commission like this. Thank you for listening to Shusai Podcasts. You can find more materials and features from the Society for the History of Children and Youth online. shcy.org.